Chapter 9 Pilate's Question Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? Matthew chapter 27, verse 22 It would not be possible for us either to understand or appreciate this passage of Scripture without studying that which immediately precedes it, and likewise that which follows. Next to Jesus himself, the important character on the scene is Pilate, who asked the above question. We never think of him without a shudder, because he is one of the men who came so very near to entering the kingdom of God. Yet after all, he miserably failed. He came very near taking his place with Joseph of Arimathea and with Nicodemus. If, when he knew that Jesus was the Son of God, he had bared his own back to the smiters, Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6, or had gone himself to be crucified, there would have been no name in the early history of the church to outshine his. However, instead of being in the presence of God today, he is undoubtedly in the lost world. When Jesus passed by the cross and went through the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, made his way to the place of ascension not far from Bethany, and left his wondering disciples, he took with him into the skies his hands that had been pierced, his feet through which the nails had torn their way, and his side that had been thrust through with the spear, and against which the beloved disciple had leaned. In a word, he took with him his body. But there was one thing he left. When hanging on the cross, the blood came trickling down from his head, his hands, his feet, and his broken heart, and not only stained the rocks upon Calvary, but left its mark upon the world as well. Leaving his blood here, the world is today responsible for it. That same blood is upon both the world and men, either for their condemnation or for redemption. There was a remarkable book that came across the seas some years ago bearing the title of Letters from Hell. It was written by Vladimir Adolf Tisted and had an introduction by George MacDonald, the celebrated Scottish preacher. In this book, there is a story of Pilate in the Lost World, stooping down to wash his hands in a running stream. He continues, it would seem, almost for ages, if time were measured as in this world. Someone touches him and says, Pilate, what are you doing? Lifting his hands, which become red like crimson as soon as they leave the water, he cries out with a shriek that echoes and re-echoes throughout the world of the lost. Will they never be clean? Will they never be clean? Poor Pilate. His hands will never be clean, for the blood of the Son of God is on them for condemnation forever. He began to wash his hands when he said to the angry mob, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. John chapter 19, verse 6. He is still washing his hands today, but in vain. There are special ways of treating texts of Scripture. One of the easiest ways is to take certain words in the verse and emphasize them, and make each word define the outline of the sermon. My text can be treated in this way. What? The first word to emphasize would be what. Reading the text with this in mind, 
we find it saying, Then what shall I do with Jesus? The inference is that we must do something. We cannot be indifferent. The person who says that he will neither accept nor reject Christ has rejected him in the very position he takes. There is no middle ground in this matter. We are either for Christ or against him, and we must decide which position it will be. Shall I do? The next words to emphasize would be shall I do. The particular part of the expression that is emphatic is the personal pronoun I. Religion is a very personal matter, and judgment will be too. There is no one whose eyes will read this printed word who will not one day be called to an account for his rejection of the Son of God if he fails to acknowledge him before men. Rich and poor, high and low, wise and ignorant, the question comes for all, what shall I do? Then. The next emphatic word would be then. It might be used in two ways. We have made a choice between two things, and when we choose one, then it naturally follows that we must do something with the other. It is easy to understand that choosing one implies the rejection of the other. But it might also be taken as a word describing some future time, and I would like to think of it here as meaning, then what shall I do in the day of judgment with Jesus Christ? When the moon will be turned into blood, and the sun will be as black as the sackcloth of hair. Joel chapter 2 verse 31, Acts chapter 2 verse 20. And when the elements will melt with intense heat. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 10 and 12. Then what shall I do? In the sixth chapter of Revelation, we read that in the last day, people will cry out and say to the rocks and hills, Fall on us, and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Revelation chapter 6, verses 16-17 through 17. In the closing part of Revelation, though, we are told that there will be no rocks and no hills to fall upon the lost and shut out the vision of the face of the Son of God, and they must see Him, whether they want to or not. Him whom they have rejected, Him from whom they have deliberately turned away. Jesus The next emphatic word is the name Jesus. Then what shall I do with Jesus? Jesus was His earthly name, and it described His earthly life. You shall call His name Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. Matthew chapter 1 verse 21 his earthly life came to its climax in His sacrificial death upon the cross. To pay the penalty of sin, His life was given up, and if we fail to accept Him as a personal Savior, we deliberately take our stand with those who have nailed Him to the cross. When we stand before God, we will be called to an account for this greatest of all sins, for to reject the Son of God is to crucify Him again. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 6. Christ. The last word to emphasize would be His anointed name, which is Christ. Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? 
as Christ, he stands at the right hand of God as our mediator and advocate. For fear that someone would say, if I would become a Christian, I could not hold out. God seems to sweep away every false argument and false hope when he tells us that after we have accepted him as Jesus, he becomes Christ for us and takes his stand at God's right hand, pleading for us in our weakness and ever bringing to God's remembrance his atoning death so that our many sins may be washed away and forgotten. Another outline has also been suggested as being a proper one to be brought out of this text. R. A. Torrey has made the suggestion that there are certain things that naturally depend upon what we do with Jesus. I will briefly mention these. Roman numeral 1. Our acceptance before God depends upon what we do with Jesus. Scripture. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. John chapter 3, verse 18. If we accept Jesus, God accepts us. If we reject Jesus, God rejects us. These are short sentences, but each one is worth a lifetime of study. The vilest sinner in the world who accepts Christ is immediately accepted by God. The most upright person who rejects Christ is instantly rejected by God. The moment we accept Him, we are justified from all the things from which we could not be justified by the law of Moses. Justification is more than pardon, for in pardon and forgiveness there may still be the memory of sin. But when God justifies us, He remembers against us our transgressions no more forever. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12. Roman numeral 2. Our becoming children of God depends upon what we do with Jesus. Scripture. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. John chapter 1, verse 12. There is a very harmful and deceptive kind of heresy making its way through the world today that declares there is such a thing as the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man. It states that God is the father of all his creatures and that every man is my brother. This is certainly contrary to the scriptures. We do not necessarily become children of God by the lives we live, by doing good, by reading the Bible, or by praying without ceasing. But we become God's children by regeneration. This is the work of the Holy Spirit, and it is worked in us the very moment we accept Jesus Christ as Savior by faith. It is not possible for us to come into this world in any other way than to be born into it, and it is not possible for us ever to enter the kingdom of God except by the new birth. This establishes us as children of God. Roman numeral 3. Our having peace depends upon what we do with Jesus Christ. Scripture. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. When we remember that peace is the opposite of confusion, strife, and unrest, 
we are able to see how great the blessing is that comes to us by accepting God's Son. We do not think of peace as simply an emotion. It is not an experience, but it is that which comes to us with the presence of Christ. He is our peace. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 14. And no matter what a person's position may be in the world, if he has rejected Christ, he must go forever throughout the world crying, Peace, peace. But for him, there can be no peace. Jeremiah chapter 6 verse 14. Roman numeral 4. Our having joy depends upon what we do with Christ. Scripture. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 8. We also remember the words of Jesus when he said, These things I have spoken to you, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. John chapter 15 verse 11. Joy is better than happiness. People of the world may have happiness, but only God's children possess joy. Happiness is that which happens to come to us, and those who lay hold upon it are dependent upon their circumstances and surroundings. Joy has nothing to do with circumstances or surroundings, but comes to us because of our faith in Him who ever lives to pour out upon His people His own presence and blessing. Roman numeral 5 Our having eternal life depends upon what we do with Jesus. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. John chapter 3, verse 36 By nature, we have the flesh with us, and we will always have it with us until we receive our redemption bodies. It is natural, therefore, that there should be a constant battle between the life of God that comes in regeneration and the old nature that is at enmity with God and always must be. However, it is a great joy to know that every one of us may so surrender ourselves to Him who is our life that the old nature will be put down and held in subjection, and we ourselves are more than conquerors. Romans chapter 8, verse 37. Finally, let me say that there are three sentences that should be written plainly before everyone who is to make this decision, or who fails to make it. 1. We must either accept Him or reject Him. 2. We must either let Him come into our hearts, or we must shut the door and keep Him out. 3. We must either confess Him or deny Him. Scripture Everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 through 33. There is no middle ground. May God pity us if today we turn away from him, for it may be the last time. <laughs>